Tom Talks are brought to you by The Grant Rant, a Hanover Research podcast. Join senior grants consultant Tom Kuhn for chats with the Hanover team about upcoming programs, interesting opportunities, and more. And be sure that you check out The Grant Rant monthly for our regular episodes. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tom Talks. Uh, this is Mallory Waters, and I'm joined today by, as always, uh, Tom Kuhn. Hey, Tom. Hello. Hi, Mallory. Welcome back. Welcome back. We also have a very special guest today joining us for uh, this episode, uh, Grants Consultant Steve Jacks. Uh, thanks for having me, Mallory. Absolutely. An actual scientist. <laughs> <laughs> An actual real-life scientist. We we exist yes. in the world, yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, so today we're going to be talking about preliminary data. Um, I, this comes up all the time. It's one of the critical components, especially for federal grants and for faculty who are going after those investigator-initiated proposals. How much preliminary data do you need? What is it? And uh, what does it mean to have quality preliminary data for your proposals? Um, so Steve, I'll go ahead and kick things off. Um, but just kind of give me a little bit of background. How So for preliminary data, this is something that I think, um, you know, we've talked about before and it's, you know, it went from something that was nice to have to now, even for some of those mechanisms that we think of where there are more pilot studies and things like that, it's kind of necessary unless it specifically says don't include it, right? Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, I'll start off by saying, you know, preliminary data really covers a lot of different things. So it, it can be all the way from, you, you have done essentially a scaled down version of the the project that you are proposing to, and that's obviously the, the strongest kind of preliminary data, but then there's also preliminary data that will show your expertise with, with a particular type of analysis or a particular uh, experimental approach that can be beneficial that you're going to use all the way down to, you know, you've done work in the area and uh, more and more importantly these days is that you've done uh, work with the collaborative team that you've developed for this particular project to show that you all can be uh, work together and, and be productive together. It just shows that, that you've got the, the, the practical experience to be able to do everything that, that you need to, to be able to do. And obviously the, the closer that that resembles the, the proposed work in terms of, uh, you know, the, the results directly supporting the, the possibility uh, that your project is going to be successful, that's great. But that's not always possible in all uh, particular realms. So, uh, you know, again, those other forms of uh, preliminary data are, are, are in some areas, uh, you know, equally beneficial. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So broadly, you're really trying to drive preliminary data to show that you're able to attain your aims and outcomes. Exactly. Yeah. So draw the line for me, Steve. Preliminary data equals published data? Not necessarily. So okay. published data is best, um, but it's fully expected that, you know, everyone knows that there are long delays between the work that you uh, you know are working on now and when it gets published. And, you know, so that if it's published, great. Um, but it's, you know, being able to show the data is probably more important um, just to be able to show that, uh, again, that, that you've got the skills. And sometimes, it, you know, it, it comes in last minute. So, you know, in an ideal world, you would have finished the project a year ago, been able to go through the full review process and got it, you know, got it published. But um, most of the time, I think that's unrealistic. And I think other reviewers will understand that and and you know you'll get a small benefit from having it published but 
not as much as you know just having it in there will be will be 80 percent of the um the benefit and what are your opinions on preprints i know in a lot of uh areas where rapid cycle improvement is is critical and like you're saying there's not enough uh sometimes time to wait before the full publication yeah so that you know Obviously, that's been a big change in the the scientific realm, and you know, more and more people are using that. Uh, you know, and it allows reviewers, if they are so inclined, to go through and look at, at the the details uh, that you weren't necessarily able to include the grant. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, a, a preprint is. Uh, um, especially in, you know, some of the, where, where it's not peer reviewed, you know, it's essentially a website. So, you know, it hasn't gone through that critical review. That is really where the benefit of having it published comes from is that, you know, some group of people have looked it over and, and see it as, uh, you know, as improved. So, uh, you know, having that, uh, having it on a preprint, it, it's nice to again for it to be accessible but i don't think it that adds a lot above and beyond just what the data say gotcha okay, yeah so that's good insight. To, so it's better just to have the raw data than to say hey check out all this data on mallory.blogspot.com like it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know it's okay <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the, you know, again, that having the data in there is 80% of it. And then, you know, you get a little bump if it's published and more of a bump if it's published in a good place. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if you're doing the the, the kind of cutting edge work, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, probably you're doing it, at, you're finishing up that data collection at the last minute so that you're really working at the, the kind of state of the art uh, in your particular field. Mm -hmm. Now I've seen in some mechanisms and I'm thinking specifically, I don't have it pulled up right now, but for NIH, there was one mm -hmm. RFA that I saw that specifically said, do not include preliminary data. We don't want to see it. You will be tossed out if you include it, but that's not the norm. I think the norm is to see something that says if you have it included, but it's not necessary. But reading between the lines, it kind of is necessary. Is, is that your take? Exactly. Yeah. So there, there are growing to be a couple. So originally, the the R twenty one mechanism was meant to be, you know, a, a high risk, high reward where you don't have preliminary data. You've just got a good idea, and it needs to be done right now. And we shouldn't be wasting time, you know, collecting preliminary data. And that was the, the initial goal. And that is the stated goal, uh, you know, within the funding opportunity. But it turns out that uh, a few years ago, uh, someone at NIH did an analysis of R21 funding rates, uh, comparing those with preliminary data and those without. And there was a, you know, a notable bump in the funding rate, you know, if you did have preliminary data, because again, all things being equal, if you've got a great idea, with nothing to support it and another great idea or, you know, a, a differently great idea with some strong preliminary data that shows it's, it's likely to be successful, you know, reviewers can't help but see that, that second option as the better one. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that has led to, yeah, there are now the, I think it is a, it's a R21 funding mechanism. I, I, I cannot remember where it is. And it's, I think particularly focused on early career investigators that, uh, you know, says, you know, you cannot put any preliminary data in. And it'll be right. interesting to see if if that becomes more common um, to really put everyone at a more equal playing field. But um, but my guess is that, you know, at, at the end of the day, the bulk of funding opportunities are going to 
want to see or at least benefit from uh, having some preliminary data. Yeah, that's really good insights. And I and I see that trend in the early stage investigator programs, both at the DOD and in NIH, where they're relaxing and even instructing people not to include preliminaries, in part because they're looking for the ESIs to to get out of underneath the wing of the work they've been doing, right, and explore new areas in, in faster cycles. But we know, and we work so much with career applicants, people going in for the National Science Foundation Career Awards. Um, and while preliminary data is not required there, I know we often advise PIs that are seeking that very uh, prestigious and competitive award to, to really only move on career once they get established in their, in their, uh, in their institution and, and can really show some uh, significant track record. What are your thoughts about preliminary in the career mechanism? Uh, yeah, certainly, you know, in the career mechanism, uh, you know, because it's a, you know, most careers get funded. So for those who aren't familiar, it's a, it's um, focused on pre-tenure uh, scientists. Uh, so between when they when they start their faculty position and then you get you get three rounds of, of submissions. It's a yearly competition. And, uh, you know, most of those get funded in that, you know, year before tenure review. So you've, you've had enough um, background. And um, so it's, you know, it's, it's very valuable to do. And what that means, and, and just in general, what, you know, coming again, since uh, you got a, a real life scientist here in the, uh, uh, in the control room that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's part of a broader kind of career planning uh, approach for preliminary data where you need to really sit down and know, okay, what are the grant deadlines? And what do I need to have in the works three months before that deadline to start getting the data collected so that I can analyze it appropriately and, you know, integrate it into a, a proposal uh, that's going to be coming down the pike. And then, you know, even sort of zooming out from that, you've also then, you know, depending on, on the type of institution you're at and how much pressure there is to get funding, you've got to probably be doing multiple preliminary data collections either in parallel or sequentially, um, so that you, you've always got, uh, you know, something kind of in the works, um, you know, for that could be preliminary data, you know, for your next grant six from, months from now or nine months from now. Uh, so you, you, know, you really got to be thinking ahead a lot. And um, especially because, you know, if you're looking to really get funded, uh, especially at the federal level, you need to be really doing stuff that is, is very cutting edge. And what that means practically is not doing the type of work where it's very incremental, where you have a very high rate of confidence that you're going to be able to, that it's going to work. You've got to kind of swing for the fences a little bit. And that means probably keeping uh, you know, a couple active projects going where you're collecting prim preliminary data to um, to show that that's going to work. Got you. So much more of a portfolio approach, right? Looking at a, a broader term. Yeah, and and you want it to be in 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 kind of conceptually distinct areas as well. So uh, you know, you you can't have uh, it, you know if reviewers don't like you know your your general approach in in this grant, you know, a very slight tweak to it is is not likely going to end up with you getting funding. So it's you've got to be um, you know working enough that they are conceptually distinct enough. So if, if reviewers don't like at a big picture level what it is that you are doing in grant A, then grant B that's distinct from it is going to 
be um, it's going to be potentially more fundable. Or in the in the best possible scenario, you get both grants A and B, and they don't conflict with one another. So you can you can legitimately accept both grants. Uh, you know, under a you know the kind of best case scenario. Mm-hmm. Steve, how do you know when you have enough preliminary data, or do you not know and you have to submit and then be told, hey, you need more <laughs> to know that you have enough? Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a really tricky balance because, uh, you know, you, you want to have enough preliminary data to show the, the feasibility, especially, uh, you know, thinking about it in a in an initial submission. So you've never submitted this idea before. Um, but, the, you know, there is a, a, a tricky balance there where, you know, you, you don't want to devote too much time and effort towards things that are not going to get funded. So sometimes it's worthwhile to have just enough preliminary data and initial submission to get the to to put it in and see what people think. And if you are just on the wrong track on, you know, big picture level, like, you know, even if the the proposal is completely successful, that, you know, we don't think it's going to have a big impact in the field, having more preliminary data to support that doesn't matter. Um, so I think, you know, sometimes it's it's uh, uh, from a, a, a kind of a practical standpoint is getting just enough data in there for an initial submission and see what reviewers think. And then if, if reviewers are, you know, concerned about a, you know, particular aspect that you don't have, uh, you know, maybe you've got three objectives and the first two are well covered, but everyone was really critical of the third. Well, then you collect more preliminary data on the third and you could save the, the time of not getting more preliminary data for, you know, objectives one and two, mm. um, you know, or another time, or it may be, hey, they, you know, no one liked objective three at all. And you decide, hey, I should just cut that. And then then you don't need to cut uh, collect preliminary data. So sometimes it's useful to just get the submission in, um, you know, when it's at a point that is is strong enough and you are confident in where you are in your particular career that this is kind of the the best proposal you can put in and you know try to get the feedback and and see what reviewers think and i and i will say too it is i have had a couple of experiences where um you can actually have too much preliminary data and i think you know i i've seen one where you know almost a third of the proposal was preliminary data and it was never explicitly stated by reviewers, but, uh, you know, I, I did get the opinion that essentially they were asking, you know, okay, why do you need a grant? Like you, you've yeah. already done most of this work, you know, what do you need a grant for to do this for, for five more years? Um, and so I think, you know, there has to be a sense of, you know, th- that even for grants that are not specifically designed to be high risk, high reward, is that there has to be some risk there. And I think there, and this is rare, but it can happen that, you know, people can be too certain about it and it just seems too uninteresting to then take those final steps to, you know, to, to do the work that's proposed in the grant. Yeah, that's a good assessment and good advice to PIs that are looking to, you know, right size their preliminary data assessments. When we know that when we lay out the literature and we show this current state of the field, we're often talking about the strengths and weaknesses of the current state of the field, right? And as an opportunity to get at the kinds of things that the researchers want to resolve, uh, both for the field and, and more broadly. When you when you are talking about, you know, and criticizing the, your preliminary data, how important is that to, to to you know, lay out the potential deficiencies to show enough preliminary data and some weaknesses that show 
you know, you really understand the strengths and weaknesses of your own work. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. I think, you, you know, you do want to acknowledge that your own preliminary data, even if it's strong, is, you know, is suggestive. And you can even point out, you know, it, it's, you know, under many scenarios, it's okay, you know, we need to collect this, check this in a larger sample, or it might be, you know, we, we've shown some initial um, success, but there may be any number of parameters that need to be investigated to know, okay, does this not work, but are we doing it in the best way that we possibly can? And that's a justification for, okay, we need to do more work in this area to, to try to understand it. Um, uh, or it might be, you know, depending on the area, it might be, we need to understand why it works. So you might have a, a kind of a proof of principle that the, the end result, um, you know, is, is what you would expect, but you don't know why. And, and understanding the why uh, is, is the, the, the critical contribution to what the grant is going to be. Right. Um, so I think, yeah, it, you know, ending your preliminary data section with a combination of, we think this is strong, but there are still these really key questions that we need to answer um, is I think the, uh, uh, probably the strongest approach. Yeah, always providing those risks and contingencies, right? That's an, a hallmark of good science. Mm -hmm. Where yeah. should so where should early career faculty who are, you know, trying to trying to get things off the ground, where do they normally go to get the funding for some of that preliminary data? Does that come from seed funds from institutions or are there other mechanisms that they should be looking at? What's your what's your insight into how they generate this preliminary data that they're going to need? Yeah, and that is always the, the really tricky question. You know, ideally, if you're talking about an early career investigator, you're you know, hopefully going to be coming in with some some startup funds to be able to do the work. Um, you know, it really depends on the area. Like some, uh, you know, research programs cost little to no money to do. And mostly what you're looking for in a grant is for people to devote time to the work. Other times, you know, you're using lab supplies and maybe you're spending $1,000 a day to do research and you, you need that money. Um, so, you know, my big recommendation is always to start within the institution. Um, almost every institution that, that wants uh, investigators to be research active, they, they have some opportunity to, uh, to, to seek out uh, pilot funds. And, you know, those are going to be probably have a higher success rate and are going to get you to doing the research as quickly as possible. Um, you know, if you are in one of those, those uh, uh, fields where it is very costly just to do the basic work and you don't have a startup, you don't have a, any institutional resources, uh, you know, there are uh, some funding mechanisms uh, so, for example, in NIH, the RO3, that's particularly designed for kind of small scale projects like this. Um, you know, the big challenge of that is just time, is that, you know, you are, you are looking at the same review cycle that, that you always have to go through. So, you know, from your initial submission to finding out about funding, you're talking about, you know, there's nine months of time right there that you've got to wait through. Um, and so, it, you know, that can be the, the challenging part. So I would just look for any kind of internal uh, institutional resources that you can. Yep. Does all this conversation make you miss academia, Steve? <laughs> not, uh, not too much. No, uh, especially the, the, you know, where I was, was at a, uh, a research institute where I had to fund 80% of my salary, uh, and all of the, the research expenses. And, uh, yeah, I do not, uh, uh do not miss having to do that. I, I would much rather, uh, help other people try to, uh, um, uh, get, get somewhere near that. Yeah, totally understand that. 
Um, well, Tom, do you have any other comments or thoughts for Steve? Yeah, no, I really appreciate all these insights, Steve, both from a colleague and from someone, you know, as actual scientists. You know, I sit on a lot of review panels and I notice more and more they're statisticians, whether they are subject matter experts in a particular field or not. Um, but these, a, a lot, I see a lot of reviewers really lean on the statistician uh, and, and, and understanding study design and the potential power and implications, you know, of mm -hmm. those studies. What, what are your thoughts about, you know, working with a statistician as you, as you uh, articulate your preliminary data? Absolutely. So that's, you know, I, I think certainly within a proposal, and uh, this is particularly true of NIH, is that, um, you know, more and more they're really looking forward uh, you know, for people to have a, a statistic expert on the team who's going to be able to help deal with stuff because, um, you know, a lot of times people just are not trained very solidly in statistics. Mm -hmm. um, and then also related to preliminary data is that, you know, I think there is increasing criticism of, you know, so for example, the, the kind of a, uh, example is a, you know, preliminary data for a clinical trial. So you're looking to see, um, you know, whether, this particular treatment benefits people or not. And I think there, there's rightful criticism of looking at the effect size, so how big the benefit was in a small sample, and using that number to, to figure out how many people you would need to test in the, in the larger study that you might be proposing. Uh, because, you know, there, there's, uh, you know the, there ends up being kind of this bias towards the, you know, potentially you know, improvements in our, you know, larger effects in the sample size that were just due to random chance, and it just gives you a bad estimate. So I see many people who are proposing studies saying like, okay, we tested 10 people, and we saw this size of an effect. And therefore, if we assume that we get that same size of effect, we're going to um, guess that for the 200 people that we want to propose to test in this study. And uh, I think there is rightful criticisms of that approach. And having someone with statistical experience to know how to do the power analysis, for example, you know, based on that preliminary data and based on, you know, other factors, um, that again, it's another area where most people are not trained in that, uh, with that level of expertise. And, you know, it's good to bring someone who, who does have that experience in, into your team. Yeah, I was I was laughing while I was muted because I can't tell you how many times I've seen an NIH summary <clears throat> statement come through saying, uh, "You really need to have a, a biostatistician on board." It's just it's something that is that is just so prevalent, um, and that we're seeing. So that's so that's definitely some good guidance there, Steve. Thanks. Absolutely. Yeah. No, we see the same thing in in the review panels where people really refer and the statistician, you know, questions the power or the or the you know the integrity of the study. It, that proposal can be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. yeah. Well, Steve, uh, thanks so much for joining us today and chatting about preliminary data. Um, it's one of those kind of murky areas where everyone knows that you need it, but they don't really know too much beyond that. So thanks so much for for coming and sharing your time. Um, I definitely want to have you back on the podcast, either as a regular guest or on a Tom Talks. Um, we can we can totally dedicate a whole Tom Talk just to talking about uh, your experience in the uh, Southwest, uh, searching out the perfect taco. So uh, I would be happy to, to talk about my my thorough research that was done there. Yeah, applied applied research. I love it. If, preliminary if it can, data, preliminary if, data prelimin that you gathered. If it can benefit anyone, I'm happy to uh, happy to participate in that. <laughs>
<laughs> All right. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. Uh, for those of you who are interested on uh, Thursday, October 27th, we're going to be doing a webinar on developing budgets and budget narratives, and then we'll be doing a podcast after that. Um, but I know that budgets and particularly budget narratives are um, sort joy. of the, <laughs> the joy, <laughs> there you go, um, of uh, putting together a um, competitive proposal. So join us to listen in on that, and uh, we hope to have you back soon. Mm-hmm.